When I went to Australia, studying tourism there, I was uh, sent to the Northern Territory University where I got into contact with Aborigines. And um, to be honest, uh, when I started there, I felt um, I wanted to completely close off my life from apartheid, from what I went through. And things where I felt like I was back into apartheid. I remember after six months, I called my mom and I said I wanted to come back. I, I just didn't want to do this anymore. And I decided to stay. Um, and it was good for me to stay because then I finished my education and I was exposed to a lot of things. And I also realized that the world is different <laughs> than I imagined. I thought after my independence, because we in South Africa, we always said um, we are the two last colonies. And then I realized, could be, <laughs> but the world out there has a lot of colonies. And today I became a conservationist because of what I picked up in Australia. And that's the way it is. Maxi Lewis has dedicated her life to protect the environment. But you can feel, listening to her voice, where laughter and pain mingle, that her fight for nature conservation is intimately linked to the wounds and scars left in her heart and in her country, Namibia, by apartheid. There was a lot of anger. There's a, and still a lot of anger around certain things, but I'm an adult now. I have dealt with them in my own way. Um, yeah, but people don't understand that these things don't go away for a long time. Maxi is still this little girl to whom everything seemed forbidden, and yet who has lived a thousand lives and who has made her personal journey an incredible story. My daughter, she's now 24, and sometimes when I tell her these things, she just says, it sounds so unreal. Mom, do you think it's real? <laughs> She sometimes does not believe that this was the reality. You are listening to Wild Basil, the podcast that tells the stories of some heroes that are changing the narrative of a region. Maxi is known by some as the mother of conservancies. What does that mean? How did she get there? How did Maxi become a conservation leader and a role model for the new generations? Maxi's story begins on the road. As she drives through a landscape she once knew was green and full of wildlife, and which now seems empty and yellowed by drought. When I was young, I saw a landscape where I wanted to see a lot of wildlife because I'm working and things need to change quickly. And now I'm a grown-up, I'm like, this is the reality. There are things in the world that I have no control over. And I'm thinking to myself as I drive through this landscape, what is the difference that I can make now that I'm an older person? I, I, not an old, I'm not yet old, but <laughs> that I have, I have the skills and the experience that I've developed over years to be able to tell my story to the next generation of young people. And this time, that is the difference. I don't have to tell my story to just Namibians. I can tell my story to a tourist. I can tell my story to somebody who has no interest 
in environmental issues and it still makes sense. And I think for me, that is my landscape. My landscape tells a story and it's a, I, I don't get sad by that landscape. I just know that if we as human beings look after that landscape, it will take me through the experiences that I have gone through. And I'm not angry about those experiences. I'm happy about those experiences. The story of Maxi is a story of landscapes, contrasting landscapes, always full of life and painted with her grit and her laughter. They are the landscapes of her country, Namibia. She drove them all and transformed them. At the beginning, there is a landscape of her childhood. I was born in Kadutura, um, in Ventuk, and so I felt a little bit constricted in that childhood because I was born in the era where apartheid was there, where there was no freedom, but when there was also a lot of poverty because I was born in a household where I came from a single mother and she had seven children and I was one of those seven children. But I was also uh, growing up in an area where there was Kaspar uh, driving around. There was always the presence of soldiers on the streets. Protests is something that I live with, and that's maybe what turned me into a, an activist, uh, not by voluntarily, but because of what I've seen around as a child. I will run after protests, not knowing why I'm doing it, but it was exciting at the time. Those are the things that takes me back to, to my childhood. There's one particular song that I used to like, and it still makes significant uh, sense now in my country because there's also things that are not going right, and I, I can sing it for you. We shall not be, we shall not be moved. We shall not be, we shall not be moved just like a dream standing by the riverside. We shall not be on our way to freedom, we shall not be moved. On our way to freedom, we shall not be moved just like a dream standing by the riverside. We shall not be moved. So as a child, I knew that verse and I could sing it over and over and over and over. And uh, this song, uh, it reminds me of these young women and men that were on those streets, people that wanted to have change in the country. And I still think now, um, when I look at uh, certain situations of war and people going through there, I don't care where you are in the world, I can understand. Namibia was the last country in Africa, at the end of the 20th century, to become independent. Namibia's struggle for independence lasted 34 years and caused some of the largest battles on the African continent since World War II. This bloody story is a second terrible chapter of a sad history, referred to as a forgotten genocide. So the childhood of Maxi 
was marked by apartheid, military violence and poverty. And that's how I grew up in the system. You don't question. There was corporal punishment. That was the biggest thing in our schools was corporal punishment. It was a very segregated uh, system where in terms of um, tribes first, you were treated as from the tribe and even within the tribes, there were sometimes even in the school, there were hierarchies. For instance, my mother was a single mother. She was not married. And I remember in this class that um, you were placed uh, li like a, a, a caste. Eh? So for kids that had single mothers and brought up by mothers, mothers that were not married, you sit in the class somewhere. And those ones that were married somewhere coming from a... So you had this hierarchy in terms of the class. And the teacher will also look at it that way. Um, which um, really had an impact on me as an adult also growing up because I thought um, there was something wrong with me uh, not having a father. My mother, her father was an Angolan refugee and my father was Herero. So I was mixed, which means that tribally uh, they created a location that's what was suburb or a location and that location if they could not tribally place you, you were given a number, and that number was, for, for us that were mixed, it was uh, 99. So 99 was anybody from, for instance, we had people that were fleeing uh, the system from South Africa, they will come to Namibia. And so because they could not place them in any of these suburbs, they will fall under 99. And because I had a bit of this and I had a bit of that, I was mixed my mother was placed uh, and categorized in this mixed uh, setup. So I was learned to speak three languages. I was supposed now to speak Ocherero, which was my own language, learn Oshivambo, and then forced to speak Africans. That's how Maxi, a little girl, ostracized because she didn't fit into any box, built her identity. By transforming her difference, and the obstacles placed in her way since childhood into the change she wanted to see. I think when I was 14 years old, um, things changed for me completely. I just became a different person. I was brought up as a Catholic and my mother was a very strict Catholic. And so I went through um, the Catholic Church, but the Catholic Church was also part of a revolt against the system. So I go to church and here we are being raised around issues about human rights and being ourselves. And so when I went to my high school, like trying to finish school, I questioned everything. I didn't cut my hair because there was uh, your hair. You, you need to understand African hair, um, when they grow, it's really bushy. And uh, we were asked to cut our hair completely short and then if they grow after a certain year, then, then uh, you are not allowed in the class or you're beaten up or you're kicked out of, of school. So I refused to cut my hair. I started to think more black and around blackness and because we had underground <laughs> other schools that teach us in terms of your identity, what you are. And I took those things to my school and taking it to my school created a lot of problems. My mom understood, uh, but she was also scared for me, scared for her house, because um, once they found out that you were involved in things like this, your house become a target. Your mother becomes a target. Your family becomes a target. 
So on one hand, I have to think about my family and what was going to happen to my family. But on the other hand, I had this thing of not being afraid uh, to speak up, not being afraid of taking chances and taking risks. And then on the other hand, I was also uh, divided into my own education because I wanted to be educated. I wanted not to leave school. I didn't want to be kicked out. I wanted to go to university. The year when we were declared independence, I qualified for a bursary to go and study in Australia. And um, yeah, so that was my first time flying out of the country. I've never been on a plane. We could not fly through South Africa at the time because South Africa, we had, there were some sanctions. So I had to fly via Harare and I was 19 years old. Yeah, 19 years old. I went uh, through Harare, stayed in Harare for three months to have my uh, checkup, what is health check. And also to learn English because my English was so bad. <laughs> Uh, so I stayed there for three, four months in uh, in Zimbabwe, and I was very amazed. I've never seen in my life a black government running a country, so never seen a black pilot. So all these things, so it was a big surprise for me, seeing that, oh, blacks could also do things, because in my country, we were just not exposed to those type of things. When Namibia became independent, they included in their constitution the protection of the environment. It was the first country to do so. Maxi was coming back from Australia and she transformed her activism for freedom into environmental activism and led the way into the design and setup of community conservancies. Her life's work of keeping the people at the center and fighting against inequality continued. Only the landscape had changed. As I was traveling in the rural areas, um, there was something that caught my mind, and that was the communities were not benefiting from any tourism in their areas. And that was one thing. And then the other thing is there was no sort of organization. Because with apartheid, there was no systems in rural areas. So we had to build up systems. So if you wanted to work with communities in tourism, you had to build up a governance system. If you wanted to do conservation, you had to build up a governance system because everything was tribally divided. Um, and so you also had to create the harmonization for people to be accepting of themselves, even though they were from different tribes. And so, yes, uh, government was very accepting of that because that's what they wanted to do. So we're actually speaking the same language. Uh, and so I, with a, a couple of other uh, leaders in the communities, we formed an organization called uh, NACOPTA, which was the Namibia Community-Based Tourism Association. And this was a group of local businesses or people that aspired to be local businesses to get involved in tourism. I then started just doing some work with these communities, trying to organize themselves in a structure for tourism. And then I started speaking with uh, government and uh, private sector in terms of, can you support these communities? Those are areas, sometimes very large areas, that the government hands over to the communities living in them. With an agreed framework aimed at ensuring sustainability, the people have autonomy on how to use the natural resources. Building community conservancies in Namibia was more than a legal framework. It was used by Maxi and her network as a way to rebuild the country and heal some scars. 
It was a creation of a common language. And this is how then we, I started uh, building with some donor funding, some campsites in Namibia, some lodges and uh, ecotourism lodges. And so it actually worked out um, around that time. And that's when I worked for more than nine years for this organization. And then I started working for a conservation network that I'm working for now. In 1996, the Namibian Law on the Protection of the Environment granted a population that had always been ostracized by the former apartheid regime the same rights as the large landowners. The Damara, Himba, San, Herero, Nama natives were given the right to use their own natural resources, whereas until then they had always been considered poachers. With the foundation, of the NASCO movement, Maxi went from working on tourism to focusing on conservation. It was the beginning of a new journey that started with wildlife and ended up again with people at its heart. When I joined uh, conservation at the time, to be honest, I was like, everything needs to be protected. I look at it from a wildlife perspective because it was very much wildlife orientated. Even when I was working in tourism, I came on some of the landscapes where there was no wildlife or the wildlife was very little. And my goal was to see more growing in those areas. My goal was also to strengthen what was already there. And then I started working with these communities. And theoretically, what I learned at university or at school for me, that was theory, but I think my biggest lessons was the practical ones in meetings with the communities and elders, where I'm being taught or where I have the debate as to why things are the way they are. And I think the moment where I uh, I realized that was once that I had a meeting in a village uh, and we were talking about um, sustainable use as a tool and as a tool for, for conservation, but also for survival. And one old man stood up and he said to me, you know what, conflict will always be there. We should not live in this fallacy that humans and people can exist without having conflict. It will always be there, you know. So what we can do is to try and address people's livelihoods if we want that coexistence to be harmonized. And I was quite surprised. <laughs> and I said, uh, but you have a choice. You have a choice. And your choice is to minimize your livelihoods yourself. And he said, yes, but I still want to live with wildlife. Who said to you that I don't want to live with wildlife? I want to live the life I live, but I want to make sure that the life I live is not being determined by people like you who are coming here and being protectionists telling me what to do. I will still conserve, but I will conserve it in my way. Just let me and let me do it. Community-based development is a search for equilibrium between individuals and freedom. The famous eternal quest we spoke about with Annabella in our first episode. We think we make the travel, but often the travel actually makes you. As she wandered through Namibia roads, Maxi continued learning lessons. An important one came to her when traveling along yet another dusty track. 
In the 80s, I went to a place called Corejas to do some uh, activism work uh, with students around there. When I was driving there, there was a big drought going on at the time. I drove through that landscape. It was the most somber landscape I've ever seen in my life. It was dry. I look at these people and I was questioning, why are they people living on the landscape like this? There's just nothing. There's no cropping. There's, how do people make a living here? Didn't see wildlife at all. If I saw, it was a couple of goats that were really thin, and I was thinking, they, why can't they just die, or why can't they just be relieved to die, you know? And then I came back into that landscape in 1996, and I was looking at this landscape thinking, not much has really changed here. Uh, people are still living in this landscape. And then... A couple of years, I think it was 2010, 2011, I drive again and I had this picture of the 80s in me and I'm looking at this landscape, totally different. Lots of wildlife, lots of springboks, see the desert adapted elephants, see plains game. The other thing that I saw, this is before the rhino poaching started, I saw rhinos, they were just on the roadside. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this has really changed. This has really changed. Five years ago, I go through the same landscape and it reminds me again of the 80s. But this time, I see the landscape, but I see the people being a bit more different. People that are more knowledgeable, people that are more motivated, people that have faith that the wildlife will come back and will manage it. In January, it rains and I drive through the same landscape. And I see again a reemergence of grass, but this time no wildlife because a lot of it died because of the drought. Last week, I drive through the same landscape. Wow, there's a return of wildlife. The people are still there. Unfortunately, no livestock, but wildlife. So I have learned, I have gone through stages in conservation where I have seen my vision being altered from a landscape point of view. Sometimes it looks like this and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. One thing that is not changing is the people within that landscape, that they still have faith. And you come back now into those areas. People have, uh, they are governing themselves. They are looking after wildlife. Poaching has gone down. They are even looking at the world's most endangered species like the black rhino. I could have never imagined 20, 15 or how many years back that that will happen. And, and it's happening. Namibia has today created almost 100 communal conservancies. They cover more than 20% of the country's land. With this model, you can now find in a country as much wildlife outside national parks than inside. Namibia elephant population has more than tripled in the last 20 years. The black rhino, once near extinction, has rebounded. And the desert lion population is back. All this because a model of communal conservancies brings revenue for the people living in those areas that makes it worth it.
And I think as an individual, I, I made that contribution through the work that I do. I created that awareness. I spent hours and hours in making that contribution, not just as a human being, as a Namibian, but also as a woman. Perhaps Maxim's most important lesson came to her as a woman. Unless she was the one who gave it. Let me tell you a story. I was building a camp in a very remote village where we have the Himba, the traditional Himba people in Namibia. And so I went there the first time and I met with the traditional authority um, and I was taken through any steps like any other women. First of all, they were very shocked because it was a, a white tour operator who was uh, doing some, where they came there that introduced them to them and he could speak my Herero language and he told them, you know, Maxi is also like you guys. She's from your tribe. She can speak the language. But she came here because she wants to um, capture the the tourists that are passing the here so that they can uh, give something back to you guys. Maybe that can contribute because they used to have mobile schools to your mobile schools or to your health, uh, to the clinics or to the transport for you go to go to the nearest town. And the chief said um, very arrogantly, uh, yeah, I don't care. Um, there's the other women, normally Himba men and women don't sit together. I knew that. I knew that was coming. I was prepared for it. So I took my chitenge, my rep, and I went uh, down underneath the tree and I sat there. But it was a distance from where I was sitting. So he, every time uh, he was asking questions, then he needs to scream to me. Uh, and it was very hot that day. So he needs to scream and he will say, yeah, you women sitting underneath that tree, tell us why you are here. But it's now so loud. And I think it became a bit tired. And the others were also complaining that he was making noise. So he said, can you move a little bit closer so that I can hear you? But you will still sit on the ground. And in my head, I said, oh, I'm graduating. <laughs> I'm graduating a little bit closer and closer. And then they let me sit in the sun. And I said, no, but that's not on. Why are you letting me sit in the sun? And they were sitting underneath a tree. I said, can I just move a little bit close to the where the shade is, and they agreed. And then I realized, wow, I have moved into the circle now. I'm on the ground, but I'm in the circle. That means a lot. And even the women that I moved away from, they picked it up and they said, wow, we see you are in the circle now. <laughs> and uh, we talked and I said, you know, I'm going to come back. And so we talked about the plans and what they want to do. I went back the second time. This time, I just went straight to where the women were sitting underneath the tree with my rep. And remarkably, the chief said, no, 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 no. You can't sit there. You should come near. You should come here. Your place is here. Your place is here. And we even brought you a chair. You can sit on the chair. <laughs> and that's when I realized, wow, I have made it. <laughs> I've made it in the circle. And so I think in a way, um, certain things also has driven, even in these areas, when I go back there, they recognize me, their kids recognize me. I grew up with a mother that was very strong. So in my house, there was no gender roles. And especially me, I was allowed, I think my mom probably also thought maybe I was just a bit different in the way I see things and do things. And I was a very stubborn child. If I did not agree with something, I was very upfront and I will just say it. And that's, so I think she, she just accepted that that's the way I am. 
I like to play soccer. There were more boys around, so they play soccer, and I used to play a lot of soccer. There was an open field in front of my house, so we used to kick a lot of uh, soccer, and uh, soccer was my thing that I played um, at the time. And so growing up, I was tough. <laughs> and then I had a grandfather also who also had no gender roles when I go for holidays. He actually talked to us and said, in this house, women here can do as much as what men can do. And so we grew up with that philosophy in our house. And so when I went into rural areas, to be honest, a lot of these meetings were mostly men. So when I, when I got there, for them, I was boss. So when they talk to me and I come to a meeting, they will say, oh, that boss, she does not sit on the ground like other women. She gets the chair <laughs> and things like that. So they just treated me very differently in terms of how they would treat other women. But I knew that they would probably look at me and say, you know, why is she sitting there? What makes her so special to sit there? Why would these men pay so much respect to her? And for me, that was my own psychology around that, like, I will not talk about it with them. I'll find a way that they look at me when I speak and maybe I will uh, touch a couple of them and maybe they will come and ask me, why, why do you do that? And I used to find that often in meetings. And I'll tell them my stories, you know, this is what, how I grew up. I'm just like you. I grew up also in a village. I went to the city. So I will give them my story. And to be honest today, a lot of those young women, I, I see them in the meetings where I go. And for me, it gives me such joy. Maxi painted her landscape to be the change she dreams to see. She's today a role model for young women and men. And she's working to hand over to the new generation, who didn't need to fight for freedom or to fight to get their wildlife back. At a glance of the two-minute attention span of the social media youth, some seem to think there are no environmental challenges anymore. But they are unfortunately wrong. Inspiring this new generation of activism is Maxi's next mile. In the rural areas, to be honest, is a big challenge in getting the youth involved because um, they also have their needs. They need uh, to be compensated with internet. They need to be compensated with things that uh, young people want, what the youth want. Do they have the same aspirations as the older people that said, hey, when I was a bit younger, I used to see wildlife and I want to see wildlife back. I Now they have wildlife there. And uh, sometimes all they see is what can I get out of wildlife? And we need to guide them and mentor them that, yes, there's no problem in addressing issues around your livelihoods, but there's also the sustainability issue that you need to look at. And when I look back, a lot of that, to be honest, we have made some uh, strides, but I want more. Let us unite, let us unite in the name Namibia. Wild Basil, a podcast produced by Mover. Written by Luis Guimarães Scherer Navarro and Martin Kennan. Music by Carson Mucavelli. Historical advisor, Stephanie Erdang. Scientific advisor, 
Ghislain Rib. Recording, Carson Studio Maputo, directed by Martin Cannon. Funded by AFD. Find us on movamoz.co.mz. Thank you.